So discipline. Discipline can be a good thing. A discipline out of control can be a deceptive thing. But God calls us to a life of discipline. And I think that all of us can relate to the reality of the good things that discipline brings. We know that we need discipline in life. We need discipline in our families. We need discipline at work. We even need discipline with our pets, right? So if you have a pet, especially if you have a dog, you need to have discipline. And so there's a picture here of, a dog, of some dogs with great discipline. Whoops, that's not it. Okay, there they are. Okay. So there's some dogs with great discipline, right? And so what it says before that is a powerful response to a deep-seated instinct, right? A powerful response to a deep-seated instinct. Now, all of us have certain instincts. Now, these dogs, you would think their instinct is to what? To chase, to catch, to kill the cat. Now, if you're a dog lover, then you're saying, my, look how smart these dogs are. They're so disciplined. They don't chase the cat. Now, if you're a cat lover, you're thinking, you know, those dogs, they're disciplined, but the cat's far more disciplined because the cat is going out into danger. The cat is standing up. The cat is walking through the valley of the shadow of dogs. All right? And so this cat represents discipline as well. Now, we understand that we have to discipline our children, right? So even beginning with school, they have to learn rules. They have to be disciplined. They have to learn their ABCs. We teach them. They have to do their homework. We make them. They have to go to school. The law requires it. Right? So that began this week or begins this week. It's about nine months legally that they have to be taught. They have to be disciplined. So that they can learn, but not just learn in their head, but also learn in their heart. And not just to learn in their head and in their heart so that they become disciplined people, because discipline itself is not the goal. Discipline only leads to a goal. And that goal in our lives, if we study and we work hard, we can become doctors, right? We can become lawyers. We can become those people who can do things that other people can't. So there would be artists. You know, there are people who are greatly gifted. Our worship team, all of them are greatly gifted. Do they practice? Of course. So whether you're a dancer, whether you're a singer, whether you're a musician, there's discipline. If you're an athlete, there's discipline. So we understand that in all these situations, there's the need for discipline. A farmer needs discipline. He needs to believe that what he does is going to produce fruit as he puts seed into a, pl- a plot of ground that shows nothing yet until he waters it, believing that as he plants and as he waters, God will make something grow. We need discipline. And God wants us to have discipline. And we all have the instinct of wanting great things. I think all of us have the instinct of wanting to be a person of significance. Now, I mean, you don't necessarily want to be famous. But you want your life to count. You want to be the person God made you to be. You don't want to waste your days here on earth doing things that are frivolous and find out at the end of life that you wish you had done it differently. 
You want to make a matter in this course of life real. And that takes discipline. But for you to be that disciplined person, that is a natural instinct to want to do good. Then you have to overcome a lower instinct, which is laziness, trying to cut corners, trying to find shortcuts, not studying, could be cheating, could be taking from somebody else. But we can't take that course of life. That's an instinct as well. What we need is we need to take those lower instincts, those things that we still naturally do, and we need to make them servants of the higher instinct, the instinct of the disciplines that God has given to us. Now, we've been talking about disciplines for the last three months, the spiritual disciplines. And each one is intended to help us to become the person God wants us to be. And so today we're talking about the prize of discipline. What do we get out of it? But we're also talking again about the price of discipline. You're all paying a good price right now. You disciplined yourself to obey God's word, to be part of his family, to worship together, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves. That you are presenting yourself today as a gift to God. That's why you're here. You are presenting yourself today as an offering as a sacrifice to God. That's a good discipline. And we begin our disciplines with God. We begin in such a way that we know that what we are doing is what Paul says in verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. We want to live and give up all that we have for the sake of of Christ. So what do we have to let go of? The first thing we have to let go of, what Paul had to let go of, the discipline that Paul naturally had in his life was a discipline called self-righteousness. Paul was good at that. If you look in your Bibles, and we, the verses right before what was read to us, so Dwayne read to us beginning at verse 7 in Philippians 3. If you have an outline, there on the um, sidebar on the first page is Philippians 3, 4 through 6. Now, this is what Paul was like before he met Jesus. This is Paul's instinct of life and the way that he was raised in his family. And so he's talking about his righteousness that if somebody could earn salvation, he would have been the one. And so he says this, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Now, Paul had it all together. He was the person who had good parents. He was born legitimately. He had great training. He had the perfect religious pedigree as well as the ethnic pedigree to be favorable to God and not only that but he rose in his ranks to have a political position and a religious position of a Pharisee that he was at the top of the ladder of those who were religious and not only that but he was so powerful in the midst of all that he had that he could make other people do what he wanted them to do and he was zealous and if they didn't do if they didn't believe what he believed he could have them thrown in jail 
he even was one who was an accomplice to murder. And that was the first martyr of the church, Stephen. And so Paul knew that his righteousness was something that was amazing, outstanding, the best you could have. But that was his self-righteousness. That was the instinct that he was born with and the instinct that we're all born with. Now, we may not be as great as Paul, but like Paul, our natural instinct is to want to earn our salvation. And if you ask most people out in the world, how do you get to heaven? They'll tell you. If you're good, you go to heaven. So you earn it. How do you earn it? By being better than those who are bad. But, but where do you draw the line on the curve? Well, you basically, you just draw it on the line of your own self-righteousness. You just know you're better than the rest. So you've earned a spot in heaven. And Paul says, and God says, that's not how it works. What you have to do is you have to give up that self-righteousness, that lower instinct for the higher instinct of what we all really want. We were born with this. The Bible says that we were born with a desire of eternity in our hearts. And that eternity is to be with the one who is eternal. And that is Christ. And so we give up our self-righteousness to receive Christ's righteousness. That's the sacrifice we need. No amount of human sacrifice. You can give up everything you love, and that won't save you. Uh, when I was a little boy, I went to church every now and then when my parents would force me. And I went to church enough that I learned things that I could act upon. So apparently at this time of my life, because I remember the incident, I don't remember the teaching, but apparently I believed and I was taught that if you sacrifice things that you love, then God will accept you. Or if you've done something bad and you need forgiveness, then you have to sacrifice something that you really like for God as a penance, and then you'll be forgiven. And so I had this feeling in my heart that somehow I needed to sacrifice something to God, and it had to be something that I loved. So I went into my backyard, and literally I remember doing this. I went into my backyard, and I dug up, and I made a little altar for God. And I put something into that altar that I knew that I loved, that I thought I had to give up to God, and I lit it on fire. It was Cheetos. I love Cheetos. Right? And there's oil in Cheetos. And so just, you know, a little flame there, poof, they're gone, right? All right, God, you know, you got my Cheetos. All right. Now, am I forgiven? Am I righteous before God? No. Not good intentions, right? Childlike faith. Good intentions. Bad theology. Right? That's what Paul's saying. He was born with good intentions. Our instinct to try to earn salvation is our human instinct. But it won't work. We need to have the higher instinct of seeking after Christ. Verse 8, what is more? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. 
So what Paul is saying here is that righteousness comes from God. It's not coming from us. And therefore, the only way that we can get it is if God offers it. And God offers it. Now the only way we can get it is by receiving it. We do not earn it. It is a free gift. And we receive the gift. How? By just opening our hands and our hearts to take it. And Paul says that is what faith is. Faith is the hand extended to receive the gift God offers. Faith is the vehicle that God uses so that we would be able to say to God, I'm reaching out to you in reliance, believing that you will give me your righteousness. And so faith is a very active part of life. And we have to understand that Paul is speaking to Christians in this passage. And we also have to realize, as we'll see in just a moment, that Paul is speaking to people who are alive. And that will be important in just a few minutes. But God wants us to know that while we are alive, that in the same way that we love someone, we cannot love them without action. We cannot show love unless we do something. In the same way, faith in love shows actions. And it is those actions that we would say are the things of discipline. And that's why it's so important. It's so important that we have discipline so that we Realize that it is Christ's righteousness that saves us, but it's also Christ's righteousness that will lead us. And so if we look at the second point, we'll see that God wants us to be led into a place of being like Christ. That is our goal in life. Let me read verses 10 and 11. I want you to know Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now remember, there were two things that we said were important. Number one is Paul speaking to people who are already Christians. And number two is they're alive, right? They're alive. And so Paul, being alive himself, is speaking in a tense in the Greek that's called aorist. And when he says, I want to know Christ, what he's saying is, I once began to know Christ, and now I continue to know him. That's what the aorist tense means. It means that something was started at a point in time, and it continues on to today. And so Paul is saying to all the believers here that I want to know Christ as an example to you that you might know Christ in the same way. And you are alive. But within your life that is alive right now resides a living Savior who was resurrected from the dead. And so the resurrection that Paul's talking about here is not the final resurrection of being raised from the grave and being with God forever in heaven. Paul's not talking about that because if he was, then he would have to be earning his resurrection by knowing Christ. But that's not what he's talking about. He's saying that as I know Christ, what I'm going to also know and experience in my life is this power of the resurrection, is this living power of Jesus within us. And that God wants us to have everything that he died for us to have. 
I want to know Christ. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. How? Now that's the higher instinct. We sang about it in In the Secret. I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to feel you. I think all of us have that instinct that we want God to come down and talk to us. We want God to answer our prayers. We want God to work in our relationships. We want God to be in our hearts. We want to see God, and we want to see God work. We want to feel God, and we want to know he's here. And Paul says you can. But the problem is that many of us don't like the lower instinct thing. See, the higher instinct is we want to know the power of the resurrection. We want to know what it's like to have Jesus. But the means to it is that we have to go through a lower instinct, and that is the enduring of suffering. Nobody likes suffering. I thought it was great on the video. I'd never seen it before. But I guess all those people were singing and dancing and laughing, you know, while that little kid was laying there before he had to get his uh, teeth work done, right? You know, like, ha oh, this is going to be great. You're going to have fun, you know, everything now. Now open your mouth, right? You know. Now, we suffer, okay, and we want that kind of world, right? You know, everybody is sort of laughing and everything's happy. And, you know, this thing that you're about to do to me, it's, it's not going to hurt, right? How can it hurt? You're singing and dancing all around me. The reality is suffering hurts. And suffering is the door to knowing the power of the resurrection. Suffering is the key to opening the door and keeping it open in a life of discipline. If you know how to suffer in the right way, you will grow spiritually. Now, when have you learned more about life in anything? Is it not when you go through a difficulty? Now, wouldn't you say that what's made you strong in life are not the easy things, not the good things, but the things where you had to suffer? And suffering is not only a door of discipline, it's also a door to compassion. Because when you suffer, and you know what it's like to hurt, and you know what it's like to hurt so much in your spirit and in your emotion and in yourself, that you would say, as I have said, God, it hurts so much more, I'd rather hurt physically. I would rather hurt physically than go through this emotional turmoil inside of my mind, inside of my heart, inside of my feelings. But when you go through that, then you can go to somebody else with compassion and say to them, and mean it, I care. Suffering is the door to this compassion. And what Paul is saying to us here is that I want you to know that as you suffer, you are not suffering in vain. Is our world a world that is filled with more peace and joy? Or is our world a world that's filled with more suffering? Well, you know that, right? We know that. You just open your computer and look at the world news. You see it. In 1962, um, I guess it's a husband and wife. I don't know if they're brother and sister. Um, but their name is Victor and Mildred Gertzel. They did research, and they wrote a book. 
and they wrote a book about famous and gifted people. And they studied over 400 famous and gifted people throughout history looking for common denominators of greatness. So they studied people like Churchill, like Keller, Helen Keller, artists like Picasso, religious saints like Mother Teresa, geniuses like Edison and Einstein, political figures like Gandhi. And they looked at all of these, over 400 of them, looking for common denominators. And in over 390 of them, what they found was that they had gone through great suffering. Not just a little bit, but significant pain. God uses suffering to bring greatness, to become the person God made us to be. God wants us to know that it is the resurrection power within us. See, we, when we go through suffering, sometimes we say, oh, I feel like I'm dying. And it is in those moments that we need to be raised up to life. And it is through the power of Christ and his sufferings that we become like him to reach our goal. And so God wants us to be willing to share in the sufferings of this world. In the sufferings of Christ who bore the sins of this world. So that we could be like him. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that he wants to be a person who, like Christ, after he suffered and after he died and after he rose from the dead, had the power to give new life. I want to do that now. Because I'm alive now. And I want the power of the resurrection now. So that I can give this life to other people now. Because they need it today, in this moment, and in this time, while on earth. This is the discipline that God calls us to share with other people as we talk about evangelism. To be, as we talk about discipleship. Because to be a disciple is to be disciplined. A disciple is disciplined. And God wants us to know this discipline. He wants us to know this power. And you have that power within you. The Bible says that if you know Jesus Christ, then the spirit who raised him from the dead already lives in you. And so you have this power. Now, maybe it's dormant because you haven't let it be accessed. See, that's where discipline comes in. Because we do have the power. But we have to exercise the will that God gave us to see that power turn into dynamite. And that's what the word power is, dunamis. It is dynamite. And it has the power to destroy sin. It has the power to overcome apathy. It has the power to move that thing of inertia into a place of action to become the person that God made us to be. And so God wants us to know we have to do something. That is our faith. We are not earning our salvation. We're already saved. God wants us to know that there is something called training that he's going to put us through. And so we have to intentionally allow our lives to be trained. And in that training, we will face strain and struggle. But that is what God is using today so that we will be ready and prepared to be with him forever. 
Let me read for you verses 12 through 14, and they'll be up on the screen there. You can follow along. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. Paul is saying that he has to strain to become the person God made him to be. In verse 12, he says, Christ took hold of me. Christ took hold of you if you're a Christian. At a point in time, Christ took hold of you. And why did he take hold of you? He took hold of you so that you could become the person that he made you to be, that you could become that person of influence, that you could be that disciple that makes a difference in other people's lives. That's why we are here. That's why God allows us to continue to live, that we would know this power in our lives so that wherever you're facing suffering right now, can you give that over to God so that he would use it, so that you would be disciplined, so that you would be able to keep on going even though it hurts. Paul calls that not just straining, but training. You also have in your outline there 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 25, on the sidebar on the right. Would you read it with me? 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. Let's say it together. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. What does Paul say? We are going into what kind of training? Strict training. God is calling us here to straining in Philippians chapter 3 and to training in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is not always pleasant, but it is always necessary. We must discipline ourselves to be the people that God made us to be, and we must discipline ourselves to be the body of Christ that God made us to be. We are the body of Christ. And God has called us to take care of this body and to grow this body. And it happens through training and through straining. It happens by doing what is right. And again, our lives paint that picture of it, but we have to apply it to our spiritual lives and not just our physical. But we have a body. And Paul says we are part of the body of Christ. See, you already have a body. Everybody here already has a body. It's your gift. You already have it. That's, let's say, your salvation. You have your body. But now you are called to strain and train that body. So what does your body need to stay alive and to grow? It needs food, right? But it needs good food. It needs healthy food. It needs the food of God's word. And in the same way that we have to train to not eat junk food and to learn how to eat more vegetables and fruits and grains, God wants us to know we have to dig into the food of his word. And to study it because it is food to our souls. What else do our bodies need? Our bodies need exercise, right? You know, just sitting around, you're not going to get healthier, right? Yeah, darn, there's no pill, right? You're just sitting here is not going to make us healthier. We have to get out and exercise. So just pray. God wants us to pray. 
Prayer is like a muscle that God put in our body. And unless we exercise that muscle, it will atrophy and we'll become weak and shabby and limp. But God calls us to pray. I would wish that every one of you would show up at prayer circle this week and just be able to make a mess of Pat and C's house. <laughs> and that a hundred of us just show up there because we want to exercise this muscle of prayer because there is a need in our life and a need in the lives of other people that we care about. And we want our lives to matter. Is it part of straining? Is it part of training? Do we have to give up something to be there? Absolutely. But be there. This Wednesday, the Pat and C's house, their address is there. They'd love to have us over. They have a big backyard. God wants us to strain in prayer. Not just on Wednesdays, but every day. To take time to pray and to be with him because our bodies need exercise. You know, a healthy body also needs to socialize. A healthy body needs to get out. It's just like if we have kids and all they do is sit on the couch all day and watch TV or play video games. And what do we say? He said, go out and play. Go out and do something. God wants to say the same thing to us. Don't just sit there. Go out and do something. Use your bodies. Exercise. Be together with other people. Socialize. Be in fellowship. Be in worship together. Take care of your lives. Get out there and go and help other people. Go out there and give joy to other people. That's service. That's good for your body. Go out there and have yourselves a good time as well with rest and refreshment. You know, training doesn't have to always be painful. It's always hard, but it's not always painful. And as we've been talking about it over the last three months, we've been talking about spiritual disciplines like reading God's word. Being disciplined in prayer, being disciplined in evangelism, being disciplined in spending time alone with God to build your relationship with him. And so at the end of the month, we have something that we're calling a little peace and quiet. And how many times have you said to yourself, I wish I could just have a little peace and quiet? Well, I promise you that if you come, you will get a little peace and quiet. At least three hours of peace and quiet. Over in William Mason Park, which is by UCI, and we have pictures of it there. You know, can you believe that's in Irvine? I mean, you know, just right next to UCI, right in the middle of all this busyness in our world, there's beautiful lakes and real live animals. There's green grass that grows from dirt. There are birds. There's quiet, shade, and peace. And I promise you, if you come, you will get at least three hours of peace and quiet. But you will also be disciplined to do that, to read God's word as we take a portion of God's word and dwell upon it, chew on it, meditate on it, as we pray and listen to what God is saying, not just what we want to say. That God wants us to train with him and be disciplined. God wants us to read his word all the time and know it. 
In your bulletin, you also have another flyer called The Story. Why don't you pull that out for just a minute? Now, this is the last week of the series on spiritual disciplines. But next week, we're starting a new series called The Story. And it's going to run the whole length of a school year. And we're going to be learning from Genesis to Revelation, the big story of God's word. We're going to be going through every book of the Bible. Now, we're not going to have to read every word of the Bible unless you want to, and you'll get the passages for that. But we're going to be using this book here, and it's called The Story, right? And it's a condensed version of the whole Bible in chronological order. So it starts with Genesis, and it ends in heaven, Revelation. And God wants us to know his story. And he wants us to know how our stories fit in his story. And there's nothing, nothing more powerful, more feeding to our soul and to our spirit than knowing God's story in our life and knowing the whole picture of all of his word. And we're going to talk more about that next week. And we're going to be starting to make the Bible, the story Bible available next week. So you want to be here. You want to be here. Except for those of you who are visiting, you don't want to be here. Okay, because you want to be at, we don't want, we don't, you know, no sheep stealing. You want to stay at your church. All right? And, um, but, but we all want to know God's story. God wants us to do this one thing. One thing. If somebody looked at your life, what would they think the one thing that is most important in your life is. Somebody followed you all day and they said, you know, I'm just going to sort of be like a video camera big brother with you all day, but don't worry about it. Just do what you normally do. At the end of the day, what would they think is really the one thing that really drives your life? Paul says, you can do that to me. And I'll tell you the one thing of my life. This one thing is that I forget what is behind and I strain towards what is ahead. And I aim for the prize of the upward call of what God is inviting me to. And what Paul is saying, what he was saying in First Chronicles, First Corinthians chapter 9, is that there is a race that we are running. And just like a runner, we have to strain forward. We have to move forward. And we can't look back. If we look back, one of two things can happen at least. One is we'll slow down and we can't slow down because we have a goal to reach. And the other thing is we can get lost or get off the path. God says, don't look back. It doesn't matter how you failed. It doesn't matter how you've succeeded. You have today. You have right now. From this moment on, God is calling you to strain forward, to move forward, to make progress. God is calling us to this life. And Paul is saying that he has a goal. And this is our goal as well. That our goal is to be like Jesus. That is our goal. But what is our prize? Our prize is to be with Jesus. Now and forever. Our goal to be like him. And as we do, we strive to receive the prize of being with him. And this is the disciplined life that God calls us to in every way. A disciplined life to be his disciples, to strive, not to earn, but to put forth effort to being all of what God calls us and made us to be. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've given to us and for the power of your word and the power of the resurrection. 
and all that we have because of all that you've done for us and all that you are. And so, Father, we pray. We pray that we would be a people who know the power of the resurrection and who share that power in the lives of other people. And so, Father, we ask that you would feed us, that you would strengthen us. And then in these moments that are coming, as we remember the life of Christ, who gave his body, who sacrificed his blood, and he calls us to remember him and to take and to eat and to take and to drink. So, Lord, it is our invitation today from you to take in memory of Christ, his body and his blood. Lord, help us to take in faith, knowing what you've already done for us in Christ's righteousness through the cross, through justification, through forgiveness. In his name we pray. Amen. Would the ushers please come? If you have committed your life to Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he invites you to this table. If you're still seeking and searching, he wants you to know him. And maybe even right this moment, you're sort of on the cusp of saying, you know, I really don't know. But maybe you know enough to take the step of faith to accept him and believe and receive. And actually, even in the act of taking of the bread and of the juice could be an act of faith. And it be your prayer to say, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you are my Savior, that you died on the cross for me, and that you rose from the dead to overcome all my sins and promise me eternal life. And if you would pray a prayer and ask God to take over all of your life, he'll say, I will, and I do, and you are my child. So we invite you to take of the bread and to take of the juice in faith. That just taking this won't make anyone a Christian. This is a memory, a remembrance, a sacred time of remembering what Jesus did to make this faith appropriate and real for salvation. But by faith we are saved through faith and believing. Will you believe?